Y'all, I think we would have to go back to 1999 and the uh, hubbub that preceded the, the final days right before Y2K. Who remembers Y2K? <laughs> to match the, 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 the buzz around what was going on last weekend and then, of course, on Monday, the, the great eclipse of 2017. I mean, it was nuts, you know. And then the fact that we live so close to the path of totality, honestly, didn't that make it even crazier? Because, you know, there have been other, but, but we're so close, it, it really, really got crazy. Now, we jumped in our car and uh, we drove up, to, um, drove up to Lebanon, ended up at a city park there and uh, Lisa and myself and uh, our daughter Sally and then Lisa's sister came up and her 11-year-old daughter and we lay down and it, it, as that totality was hitting up there, you know, in the last 10 minutes of, of that and then when it went totally dark was... I, it, it, how many of you got totality? Most, it, many of us, most of us, yeah, you know, here's the difference, and I hate to say this for those who didn't. The difference between totality and 99.9% totality is the difference between light and darkness. I mean, it was that extreme, and it was something that uh, I would say this. I mean, for me, um, I, you know, I will forget it because I'm going to have dementia, who knows what, when I get older, but... I won't forget, I mean, it, it was something that you not only saw with your eyes, you felt it with your body. Now, we have come in our study of Mark's gospel to a similar event. What am I talking about? Well, uh, we are at the death of Jesus. We are at the cross. Nothing more central to the Christian faith than the cross. And there's a cosmic event, as Luke read, that happens, that darkness comes. There's a, there's a cosmic event, but it's not the lining up of the moon and the sun and the planet. It is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit fulfilling the promise of God to make a way for a fallen humanity to be back in relationship with God himself. Uh, when Paul was summarizing, or, or not even summarizing, when Paul defined his life and what mattered most, you know, he cited this passage in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He said, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Have you ever wondered why he didn't say, and him crucified, buried, and raised again? Why did he say, and him crucified? Because what happens at the crucifixion, it's not that he forgot the burial and resurrection, but he was pointed at the cross itself and what happened because it was such a cosmic event. It indeed changed the world. God, at infinite cost to himself, made it possible for us to have infinite blessing through the son who died. Let's open our Bibles to Mark 15. And my hope is, as you know, the eclipse hits you and, and you won't forget, my hope is we're going to enter this darkness of Good Friday and literally the moment of his death. Uh, may it mark us even deeper. Mark 15, we're in verses 33 to 47. Uh, Luke has read it. I'm not going to read back through it, but I am going to grab four things uh, out of the passage, okay, and we'll read parts of it. It's really two categories. I'm going to look at 
event, two events, and I'm going to look at two people. So that's what we're going to look at, two events and then two people. Now, when we look at these two events and these two people, what we're going to get is we're going to go under the waterline and go, oh my goodness, that's what's happening theologically. That's what's happening biblically. I mean, it's just so much theology, and this is like a week-long seminary class, quite frankly. But we'll look at the theology, but it'll also enable us to go, okay, that's what it means to me today and what it requires of me today. So, two events and two people. Let's start with the darkness. This will be the longest part. We're going to start two events, the darkness itself. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came... Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Look in your Bibles at verse 25, same chapter. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour is nine in the morning. So when the darkness hit, what time was it? Say it out loud. Noon. How long has Jesus been on the cross? Three hours. Three hours on the cross. Rob talked about this when he covered it two weeks ago. The focus so much, not so much on the physicality of the cross as much as on the relational and the emotional pain of Christ. Remember that? Talked about the shame that he bore our, he bore our shame. And I want you to think about this and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a few moments. But I have on my body, I have scars where I was physically hurt. I don't even think about them. I have relational and emotional scars, some I think about every day. It goes way deeper than the physical scars. And Jesus himself, three hours on that cross, you all, mocked, shamed. Why? Taking our shame that you and I would carry and removing it from us by his own absorption of it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Okay. It, it was a darkness at noon all the way till three, and it was not an eclipse. Well, Lord, how do you know it was an eclipse? Well, it, the moon's at full, it's a full moon at Passover, and, and so it, it, physically it couldn't have been the moon blocking the sun. It was three hours long, y'all, three hours long darkness. What is darkness in the Bible? It's the first place we want to go. We want to go, well, what, what do we see about darkness throughout the Bible? And I'll say this, there's many things we could say. Let me summarize, summarize it right here. Darkness is not the absence of God. It'd be easy, wouldn't it, to say, well, you know, there's light, that's God, and there's, there's this darkness, that's evil. But you know, the psalmist says light and darkness are the same to God. <laughs> this, there's, no, there's no absence of God in darkness. What darkness is, is the presence of God in judgment. That's where we go. Go through our Old Testament, and what we notice is that when there's darkness, it's the judgment of God. Oh, he's present, but he's present in judgment. Let me describe it this way. The prophet Amos, is, uh, he's, he's prophesying to the northern kingdom. You know, Israel is now divided, Israel and Judah. And, you know, this is the nation of Israel. It's called Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom is Israel. This is late 700 B.C. Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom who is off the reservation, way off the reservation, idolatry, rebellion, everything you can imagine. Amos speaks God's judgment in Amos 8, 9 through 11. Don't turn there. I'll read it for time. 
Listen to the similarity as I read this. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Do you hear the judgment in that? Do you hear some similarities to what we're looking at today? Do you know, remember when we talked about uh, prophecy and I had you guys hold your fingers like this to where you could only see one finger and I said, now turn it like this because oftentimes a prophecy has an immediate fulfillment, but it's also got a later one. What are we reading here? Did Did that actually happen to the northern kingdom of Israel, what he just described? Yes, it happened. But is it not pointing as well to something future that you and I are reading about the historical event, even in this text in Mark. I want to go further with this. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. I'm going to go all the way to the beginning, y'all. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 10. Uh, I want you to see, what I want you to see here is this same thing, okay? We're going to see something happening way back here in Exodus 1,500 years, this is going to happen. 1,500 years are going to pass, and it's going to happen again, what we're reading today. But we're reading, the 15, we're reading this one, 1,500 years past. Here's the context. Israel is in bondage to Egypt. Think about, I want you to think about the words I use. I want you to think about the description I'm, I'm giving you and, and, and connect it to our own passage today. They are in bondage to Egypt. They are slaves of Egypt. God sends one man, Moses, to deliver them from their bondage, to bring them to freedom, okay? He comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and, 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 and he begins, God begins to pronounce judgments upon the nation. And you guys, you know, this story, you, know, you know these things, the, the um, blood, you know, water to blood, insects, frogs, boils, hail, all this. We are in chapter 10. We're going to look at the ninth plague and then the tenth. Because it goes ninth, tenth deliverance. Okay? Watch it. Pharaoh is not letting them go. God brings judgment number nine, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. For three days. It was a darkness one could feel. Have you ever been darkness you could feel? Um, I'll say this. I, I'm, I'm not a spelunker, you know, going in caves. I don't, I, it just freaks me out. But I, I, I'm willing to go in Ruby Falls, you know, where you can walk through there and go see the falls. And when you go in Ruby Falls, you're underground. And they'll turn the lights off at one moment. And I'm telling you, a darkness gets on you that is a darkness that you could stay in there for days and your lights aren't going to adjust because our eyes weren't made for that level of absolute pure darkness and you can't see your thing. You cannot get anything there. And it, it's like you're swimming in a pool of black oil because there's nothing but darkness on you. And that's the darkness they felt. As God's judgment comes upon Egypt. Now, God makes a way uh, because this is the darknesses, you know, the judgment of the darkness. 
God's getting ready to deliver his people, but no, I want you to watch this. It goes from darkness to the 10th plague is death. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. Darkness, death, deliverance. Now watch this. God says, Israel, I'm going to make a way for you not to experience the death that's coming. And he instructs all of the Hebrews to kill an unblemished lamb, to take the blood from that lamb. And if that, it's like the top of that, uh, you know, this arch right here. Put it on the top of the arch of your doorway, sprinkle the blood all the way across the top of the doorway. And when the death angel passes over all of Egypt. Listen, everyone's going to die. Every first one's going to die. But when, he, when the death angel passes over a home and there's blood on the doorway, in other words, that home is under the blood of the lamb, then the death angel passes over that home. But boy, let the death angel come to a home and there's no blood over the doorway. That home's not under the blood of the lamb. Male, female, animal, human, firstborn is taken. Don't miss this. The children of God are delivered from death by the death of a substitute. Look, you're going to have something dead in your home unless you kill the unblemished lamb. The lamb's going to die so that you don't have to. Are you with me? So, With that, flip back to Mark 15, because we're 1,500 years later. Jerusalem is brimming with people, you all. It's chaotic. There's so many people in Jerusalem because they're there to celebrate a festival. What festival are they celebrating as Jesus is put on the cross? You tell me. What? Yes, Passover. They're celebrating Passover, And John said, early in his ministry, in in the Gospel of John, and John speaks this, when Jesus comes towards him, he looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the the Lamb of God, who does what? Oh my, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's where I don't want you to miss this. You know, in our story of Scripture, one story all about Jesus. There's in the Old Testament, 1,500 years before it occurred, there's darkness, there's death, and then what's the next thing? Deliverance. We're reading about the death of the Lamb, the only, final, complete, perfect Lamb, There's darkness, there's the death of the lamb, and obviously next week we'll talk about there's deliverance. Well, how does Jesus take away sin? How did he he take away sin? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want us to take a breath and feel the weight of that truth. Jesus became sin, men and women. It's like, it's not like let's, let's put labels on him. He became sin. The darkness was God's judgment on sin and it was focused like a laser beam 
on the one, the one person on the planet, the one person on Golgotha who had no sin receives the punishment for the sin while everyone who's standing around mocking him, spitting on him, hammering the nails, don't believe in him, all the sinners receive no wrath. Only the innocent Jesus does. Is this mind-boggling? Why, oh God? God, why would you pour out all your sin on, on, on your only and innocent son? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward who? Toward us, i.e. God demonstrated his own Lord, his own love toward the ones who spit on him, mocked him, were yelling at him, and didn't believe. He, because he loved them and he loved us, he pours out his wrath on the Son. The innocent one. One commentator describes Jesus becoming sin in this way, and it was so graphic, it was very helpful for me, maybe for you as well. It's a longer quote. Stay with me. He writes, The Father looks at Jesus, the pure and innocent one, and sees there the guilt of a billion souls, and he holds the Son to account for all of them. In these agonizing hours, Jesus is a terrorist, a mass murderer, a child abuser. He is an armed robber, a drug dealer, a gangster. Jesus has stolen, blasphemed, bribed, walked out on responsibilities, cheated on exams, envied the rich, looked down on the poor. He has left the truth half said. He has talked behind people's backs. He's dodged taxes, Fiddled with expenses, snapped in impatience, said one thing and done another, held grudges, failed to offer a kind word when he had the chance. Jesus became sin for us. It has a way of making it come home, does it not? He became all your sin and my every sin I've ever had. Just me was on him from my birth until my death. In word, in deed, in attitude and thought. I have a terrible memory. Like there's just stuff about high school I don't even remember. So I'm assuming I didn't sin then, right? No, no. I don't remember those sins, but do they must they be accounted for, y'all? Yes, in a just universe and by a just and holy God, they must be. And the ones I can't even remember, the ones that I, have, I will yet to do, they all fall upon the innocent Jesus. This is what's happening on the cross. This is the atonement, making payment for our sin. No wonder it got dark. You do know that no one in the room will go through this day without sinning. We, we know that, don't we? I, I, think, I, I mean, we, we, you need to. You won't. Because I go, <laughs> anything that's not holy and righteous is sin. So, so you tell me, I mean, you're going to have a thought today. You're going to have an opportunity to do something and you don't do it. You're going to do something. You go, I shouldn't have done it. You're going to sin, you see. 
This is, the, the gravity of sin is way bigger. Our problem's way bigger than we imagine. And Jesus takes it all. Now there's three hours, you see. He's absorbing all, he's, he's absorbing the wrath of God. And then he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. And right now we step into a realm that we cannot fully grasp. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was pleading, crying out. It was a groaning that's beyond our human understanding. He's sweating like drops of blood. He was not dreading the physical torture. He was not dreading the mocking and the spit. What was he dreading? Forsaken by his father. This is again, I mean, we can't get this. We're talking about a mystery here for the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit is never broken, but in a way we we can't imagine, but the truth of the scripture is this. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. Therefore, once Jesus became sin, the father must turn his face from the son. And that loss for Jesus is something you and I, if we trust him, will never experience. For if we ever did experience it, we would be in hell. We'd be gone. It'd be over. We'd be, you know what I'm saying? It would be, you, 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 a human being can't take it. And Jesus, even in and of himself, eternally connected to his father, endures a separation and a forsaking that we all deserve. And he did it so that we would never have to experience it. And it, you know, it makes me think of, and I know this is a weighty message, but it makes me think of my own posture toward my own sin. You know what I do when I sin? I kind of, yeah, let's go eat lunch. And I, it's just, what do I do with my sins? I sin and I take it so lightly. Oh my, what it costs the son and the father for every, every, one of my sins. Okay, that's the darkness. I won't spend as much time on the other things. We're looking at two events and we're looking at two people. The darkness, now I want to look at the veil. The veil, look at verse 38. It says, uh, or 38, yeah. And the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. This is after Jesus died cried cried out his last breath. Okay, there's two veils at the temple. There's an outer veil. Imagine that where you all are sitting is called the outer court. And then right here, if you walked up these steps, there would be a building here. So you're under the sunshine out here. There's a building right here, a rectangular building. There's a veil that separates the outer court from the inner parts of the temple, okay? So this first veil is a massive, huge veil, and it would be public if it tore. But when you go from the outer court through this veil into this first inner court, you are now in what's called the holy place, okay? And, and, and not many people could come in the holy place. No women could go in the holy place, and so only priests go in the holy place. So you're in the holy place. And imagine the holy place went back, and there was, imagine that this screen, and it, you know what? It, might, it was probably, it was more than this because it was 70 feet tall. Of, imagine a huge veil right here that went all the way to the ground and separated the holy place that if I went behind this veil and got back here, I would be in what? What's back here? What's it called? The holy of holies. You know, who's in the holy of holies? Who's in the holy of holies? 
God's presence is in the Holy of Holies. I mean, you know, I, I just acted like I could dip in there. Trust me, if you dip in there, you don't come out. That's the presence of God. Only one man could go in the Holy of Holies only one time a year. He had to be ceremonially cleansed. They had to kill animals. He had to be under the blood, et cetera, et cetera. He had to tie a rope on his foot just in case they missed something. He goes in there and he drops dead and everybody can pull him out. It was, you don't go in the presence of God, you see, but God allowed that man to go in under all those rituals in order to cover the sin of the people for one more year. And then the next year, got to go back in there and make atonement and make covering for the people again. It makes sense to me that the veil that was torn, while we don't know for sure, was not this one. I think it was this one. I think it was this one, i.e. torn from top to bottom. The picture is God alone can tear this veil and God does tear it from top to bottom. There's no way a man could tear the veil. Man's incapable of tearing that veil into the Holy of Holies. God does it for man. And when that veil is torn open, all of a sudden the presence of God is accessible, you see now, to any who come in the blood of the lamb. Write down Hebrews 10, because that's where I would say the explanation is when it speaks of Jesus going behind the veil. It's not that Jesus went behind the first veil. He went behind the second veil because he was unblemished and satisfied the wrath of God. Two events and then two people, okay? The darkness, the veil. Now let's look at these two people. First one's gonna be the centurion. Look at verse 39. When the centurion was standing right in front of him, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. Centurion's a, a, a commander of a hundred Roman soldiers. Uh, don't turn there, but in Mark chapter one, verse one, Mark begins the whole gospel like this. In the beginning, or he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. So we know this is about Jesus and Jesus is the son of God. We know it from the first sentence. Do you know we go 15 chapters before someone, a human being, says, Jesus, Son of God? No one's, you gotta, from, from that sentence all the way through three years of ministry, no one ever says it. No human being says it until a Roman centurion who they hate. They hate the Romans, they're under the oppression of the Romans, they're occupied by the Romans. And this letter, by the way, Mark, was written to Roman Christians who I believe had to read this and go, can y'all believe it? A Roman centurion declares the truth. We don't know if this is his conversion, but I do know what he says is true. And there's a part of me that trusts it led to his genuine conversion. The only other time son of God is said address at Jesus is in chapter three. And it's by a demon. So you got, you got Mark says it, the demon says it, and now you got the Roman centurion who declares it. Mark has put these two in contrast, the Roman centurion and the bystanders and the religious leaders because, it, because well, track with me how this goes. The bystanders and the religious leaders look at Jesus on the cross and say, give us a sign. Hey, you saved others, save yourself. 
uh, come on down from the cross. Let's see if Elijah will come and bring him down. Because if that happens, I'll believe in you. But if you can't do anything right now, I'm not going to believe in you. That's how, they, that's how they mocked him. That's what they said to him. And then you've got this centurion who has seen hundreds, I think, probably die. Who, he's probably killed men himself on the battlefield. He's certainly crucified hundreds. He knows what a man looks like when they die. And he knows what they do when they die. He asked for no sign, no miracle. He stood in front of the cross and he watched the God-man breathe his last breath, surely this man is the son of God. And I want to bring this contrast to you and I and ask the question, what do you and I sometimes ask God for in order to believe? I don't know. I'll speak for myself. There are times when I say, God, if you will do this, then I'll know you're with me. If you'll heal this or do this or show Jesus if you'll just show up and speak to me then I'll know you know we we kind of can I'm not saying we're asking for signs and wonders and miracles but sometimes we kind of are you know to bolster our faith and I'm not saying God doesn't do miracles he does miracles today he can and do all he wants it's not normative it's not normative in our Bible but God can do whatever he wants and, and and still will but my point is this The ones who asked for the signs, show me something, then I'll believe, got nothing, didn't believe. The one who didn't ask for all that and simply observed the Son of Man breathe his last breath believes at some level. The Bible is clear on this, okay? Read carefully. Signs and miracles and wonders do not engender the kind of faith that pleases God. It doesn't engender that. And one of the clearest points to make on that is the disciples themselves saw more miracles at the hand of Jesus than anybody on the planet. And I cannot find them at the cross. Where's their faith after all those miracles? Because it doesn't engender that kind of faith. And we need to be careful in that. Well, what engenders that faith? You know, I, I, you know, if I take the text as it stands, I would say this, and I want you to track with me for a moment. If your faith needs some renewing, maybe it's this. What would it look like for you to spend some time in front of the cross of Jesus and watch him die? You may go, Lord, what do you mean? Do I need to go watch the Jesus movie or whatever? No. How about just taking your Bible... In reading verses 22 to 41 over and over and saying, Spirit, help me to see. Help me to envision. You know, you've got a mind and an imagination that God gives us. Help me to, help me to see and recognize. I want to see Jesus. Help me to picture him as he becomes my sin. And as your wrath is poured upon him and what he felt when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how he drank the dregs, the cup of your wrath for me. Before he breathed his last, he drank it all, drank it all the way down. And he did it. So, I, You know, it's just to meditate. What would it look like to read your Bible with a creative spirit-led imagination and see the Son of God breathe his last? That may do more for our faith, way more than a sign or a miracle. Okay, the darkness, the veil, two events. The centurion and now the secret saint, the two people. The secret saint is Joseph of Arimathea. Here's what we know about Joseph. 
verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He's wealthy. He's well-respected. He has stature in the community. It's taken his whole life to reach this pinnacle. I don't know how much higher he could go. I mean, he's on the, the council would be the Sanhedrin. This would be the 70 who condemned Jesus. He's on that. He's, it's the supreme court of, of the Jews. Um, now, John tells us that, that Joseph didn't agree with the false charge against Jesus, nor changing the charge to treason. So there's something, well, okay, he was on that, but he didn't agree. And then John tells us something else. Mark says he was looking for the kingdom of God. Every Jew in Israel was looking for the kingdom of God. But John says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, yet secretly, so others wouldn't know. So he's a, he's a secret disciple, but he's a genuine follower of Jesus. Now, at this moment in time, I love the phrase, he gathered up courage. He gathered up his courage and he went in and he asked for the body of Jesus. Who should have come and asked for the body of Jesus? His disciples. Who who came and asked for the body of John the Baptist? His disciples. Who should have come and asked for Jesus? Well, they're not there. Or his family, um, We know Mary's looking on from a distance. Um, Jesus did not secure his own tomb, burial, and care for his body. Everything we read, we, we, we can't, we don't, you know, there's nothing that indicates that he planned this out and had Joseph waiting in the wings. And that's where I want us to consider, um, two ways that we think about Joseph's actions and how they may apply to us, okay? Two ways. The first, to think about this and go, okay, so Jesus was obedient to his father, but in, his obe- in, his, in Jesus' obedience to his father, he left some things in his future undone, unplanned for, uncared for. He had to, he's dead. Now, the psalmist tells us that the Messiah's body would not undergo decay. So, so we, we do have the scripture that says, Whatever happens, the Messiah's body is not going to undergo decay. Deuteronomy tells us that the Jews knew that they wouldn't let a man hang on a cross on the Sabbath. So somehow that body was going to have to get down, be taken down. But we don't know how, and, and, and it doesn't tell us. Other than this secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, comes and takes care of the body of Christ. Do you think the Romans, after they have tortured and crucified a man, now that he's just a corpse, are going to treat it with kid gloves? <laughs> I mean, you talk about if they treated him like that then. Let me tell you, when they're dead, they throw him in a big heap in Gehenna in the valley, the Gideon Valley, and let him burn. Or they leave him on the cross and let the birds eat him. Let the animals eat him. Joseph shows up and asks for the body. Here's how I want you to think about this, if maybe consider it. If God invites you to take a step of faith, do you think that he has a Joseph of Arimathea waiting on the other side of your step to provide for you, to do for you what you need? Do you think we can take that from this passage? I do. 
I do. In all that God promises to keep, provide, guide, direct, hold. When we take steps of faith, can we trust as Jesus did, his body will be taken. You know, I, I really do believe that, that we can take steps of faith and, and there's going to be a Joseph of Arimathea. So we don't even know, you know, I don't know if Jesus even knew him. I don't know. He knew Nicodemus, but he didn't know Joseph. And he's there to care for the body. Now, I want to take that and I want to swap it. Do you think that you can be a Joseph of Arimathea for someone else? I think this is a body of Christ. That God puts you and I in places where we may... Be, our faith may be in secret a little. I don't know. You know, our, our faith may be a little bit in secret where like right here today, there's no one in this room that's really sitting here and, and, and is a secret disciple per se. You may not know Christ right now, but you're here. You're here with your parents. I don't know. Or you're here because you're kind of learn about God. That's, that's wonderful. But there's no one's a secret disciple per se in here. But I tell you, when you walk out of these doors, I don't know. Are you, Do you have places in your life where there are people and you relate to that don't know that you're a Christian, that don't know you're not just a Christian, that you're a follower of the king? Is there somewhere you shop for groceries or is there a team you play on or is there an office you work in or is there there pockets where people don't know? And, And God's invitation is step out of the secrecy and name the name of Jesus, even though it may cost you everything. Because I think when you look at Joseph, that it costs him his life to go to Pilate and ask for the body. Do you think that the Sanhedrin is not going to hear about this or doesn't already know about it? So he went and said, give me the body of the one that the council has condemned to death. And I'm telling you, asking for that body is, I'm a disciple. I'm following this one who's dead. And I I want to suggest that it it cost, you know, I don't know literally if it did, but it it had to, he risked everything to go and do this. And maybe for you and I, I don't know, but you may be in a place that God's stirring in your heart where he's inviting you, you know, you need to stand up for Jesus. Name the name of Jesus, that he's your servant king. And when you do, it may cost you. But when you do, you are actually becoming a Joseph of Arimathea for somebody. It may be someone you don't even know that finds courage because of the step that you take. Does this make sense? And it may be that's the application for you. One thing I don't want you to miss. I actually forgot this in the last service. Look at verse 46. It says, Joseph bought a linen cloth took him down, wrapped him in it. Here's my question. According to the text and the timeline of the text, did Joseph buy the linen cloth to wrap Jesus in before he asked for the body or after he asked for the body? It's not a trick question. What does it seem to say here? It looks like he bought it after to me, which says when Joseph stepped up, gathered up the courage. By the way, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear, right? You know that. You can be fearful and courageous. So it's not the absence of fear. It's actually, it's actually taking your fear with you as you do what God invites you to do. That's what courage is. 
He gathers up his courage and all he does is ask for the body. And he doesn't know yet if he's going to get it. Which tells me that courageous faith is doing the one thing that God invites you to do. Even though you don't know yet what's going to result from it. And we often get stuck in faith by thinking God's, you know, faith is doing something that results in something. As if we know that's what's going to happen. But that's not faith. Faith, biblical faith, is doing something. And just stop right there. And whatever results from that something that God's invited you to trust him for is not about you nor up to you. That's going to be the next step of faith, you see. That, but you can't take the first step if you're thinking about the second, third, and fourth. In other words, faith is trusting God for whatever he's inviting you to trust him for and leaving the results to him. That's, what, that's, that's faith. And that's what he, that seems like what he did. He just went and asked for the body. Well, he got the body. What do I do next? Let's go get the linen clean. You know, let's go do the next thing. Let us not get stuck thinking through the results of our faith. Let's gather courage and take the step of faith. Well, application, where are you in the story? If, you, if you're in the room and I don't know, you know, I don't know where your heart is. Maybe you've not trusted Christ. You've not believed that when that wrath of God was poured out on that cross and that darkness, that it was upon Jesus, though you know it should be for you. It was intended for you, but he took it for you. Do you believe that? You believe that Jesus died in your place? He was buried and rose again? That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's that trust and belief, and so your application is believe. Why wouldn't you believe today? I invite you to believe. In the room, many, if not most, you've placed your faith in Christ. Um, does your faith need some renewal? I mean, listen, that's why we gather, to encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, irritate one another toward faith. Maybe the renewal of faith is, is simply for you to, to uh, what I said earlier, read the Gospels with an imagination inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit to envision the last breath of Jesus for you, just, just to reflect on that. Maybe that would renew your faith. That's your application. Or how about this? Is there an area of your life where your faith's incognito? Is God inviting you through his word today to step out of the darkness or the secrecy and name the name of Jesus somewhere? Would you pause a moment before we conclude with a song and put yourself in this story and ask the Spirit what your application is? Let's do that for a moment. Tim, if you and Heidi and the band would come back out, we'll conclude in just a moment.
Let me invite you to stand, please. Let's stand together. We're going, we're going to sing in response to this word, singing a good way to move that truth from our head to our heart and, and enable and enhance that. You know, when Paul describes the crucifixion to the Philippians church, he does so in a, in a rather unique way. Um, he describes the darkness that leads to life. Remember this? Don't miss this. On, on this day, in this moment, there was darkness, there was death, and there was deliverance. He says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When the Bible speaks of a name. It's not describing just the designation. This is Heidi. That's her name. No, when the Bible speaks of a name, it, it's speaking of that person, their character, their actions, all that they are and all that they have come to be, all that they achieve. It's the name And so when we say the name of Jesus, we're talking about the work of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And it's amazing that one day everyone will say, you're Lord. But on that day, that future day that that's describing, everyone who says it, it'll be too late when when they have to say it. You got to go back here in time where we are today to name the name of Jesus as your Savior. In order that that day when you name it, it's not too late. You're going to name it because it's true. We get to name it now and experience forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of Christ's blood over us and his righteousness that clothes us. Do you understand? He became sin. This is crazy. We become righteousness. Get your mind around that. I can't. But that's what happens. All because of the name. Of Jesus. You know, when people experience the total eclipse, they say things like it was emotional, intense, awesome. Uh, I read of a doctor who wrote that it changed her life. And, and I can, honestly, I can see how that happens. And what she goes on to say is, it changed my life and I became an eclipse chaser before I even knew they existed, which now we know they do. May our visit to the cross always in that darkness not make us eclipse chasers or darkness chasers but may it move us to become more fully and urgently followers of the servant king and the servant king alone amen and amen if you want someone to pray with you I want to invite you to come up and come right over here. We always have people to pray with you and we want to do that. And if you, as you leave, I'm going to ask if you would stack the chairs. We've got a special event coming up. So come up and pray, visit. Before you step out, let's stack the chairs. How high do they go? How many up? Eight, Eight high. God bless. <laughs>